The Law Report with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. Well, I'm joined in studio this evening by Vanessa Lynch, Executive Director and founder of the DNA Project, who says that there is compelling evidence that a comprehensive national DNA database will not only help solve crime in South Africa, but will also act as a deterrent. Vanessa, good evening and welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you for having me. So, on the show this evening, we're going to be talking about the DNA, or Criminal Law Forensic Procedures Amendment Bill, which establishes a national forensic DNA database to detect and investigate crime, exonerate wrongly convicted people and identify missing persons and unidentified human remains. It was passed by the National Council of Provinces last week and it's expected hopefully to be signed into law by the President, hopefully not in the too distant future. We'll also be joined during the course of the show by two rape survivors who'll be telling us about the use of DNA in their criminal cases and how it was used to secure convictions, albeit not satisfactory ones, at the end of the day. So it, they'll be telling us their story and it was through the use of DNA that they got a conviction, but you will hear from them that it was not an easy road. If you have any questions or comments, you can call us on 0892-10-2010, Vanessa, let's just start off with this bill. Now, it was passed by the National Council of Provinces last week, which was rather exciting. Well, it was actually um, recommended to be passed by the National Council oh, okay. of Provinces. Um, there was a slight amendment from the original um, uh, bill that was submitted to them. Um, that was just to replace the, the South African Human Rights Commission on the Oversight Board with the Department of Correctional Services because the Human Rights Commission want to remain an independent oversight body. Okay. So in any event, that went through to the National Assembly and they passed the bill in its amended form last week. Okay. And it now is on its way to the President for what they call presidential assent. So essentially between um, you know, now and, and the signing of the bill by the president, uh, we're waiting for it to become How long do you think imminent. that's going to take? Uh, probably in the next few weeks we expect it to okay. happen. So, so hopefully by the end of the year. Absolutely. absolutely. So let's just try and unpack what this is all about. You, as I mentioned, are the executive director and founder of the DNA Project. So Correct. that started for you, just to give people some idea of where you're coming from with this from a very personal situation as to how you find yourself involved with something like this. It did, it did. It started with the murder of my father and um, it was the evidence on, on his crime scene and there was a lot of biological evidence that could have been collected and when I talk about biological evidence I'm essentially talking about DNA and um, if you think about any crime scene, specifically with regards to violent crime, there is so much biological evidence, be it blood or, um, in the case of a rape, semen, saliva, hair, that can be left on a crime scene. And it's not pointing fingers at the police because we're all to blame to some extent for not preserving that evidence and protecting a crime scene. If we think about private security guards, paramedics, um, family members cleaning up the crime scene, first responding police officers who are not qualified to collect DNA evidence, all of those people contribute to contaminating a crime scene. And when the crime scene investigators who are qualified to collect DNA or biological evidence arrive on the crime scene, either it's been completely destroyed or damaged um, or it's been thrown away and on my father's uh, crime scene specifically um, the perpetrators who shot my father they had been drinking brandy and coke in the garden and the bottle had been left behind 
the police threw that bottle away thinking that there was nothing we could do with it. In fact, there was obviously saliva and DNA evidence on it. Family and friends cleaned up the crime scene after my father was taken away to the hospital thinking that we would be offended if we came home. But in fact, what they were doing was cleaning up the crime scene. Um, again, first on crime scene responders, whether it paramedics took through various clothing, private security guards, nobody knew who had been on that crime scene and who hadn't been on the crime scene. The result of that was that there was absolutely no evidence to be collected and therefore the link to the perpetrators was lost forever. And that got me thinking of about a number of things. Firstly, we have a huge issue in this country with regards to crime scene preservation. You can have all the best laws in the world, you can have the best criminal justice system, uh, you can have forensic science laboratories, but if we aren't actually preserving and collecting DNA evidence, then all is lost. Secondly, we have this amazing technology called DNA, and I realized at that point that we needed to really harness this and utilize it to its best ability. And the only way we were able to do that and use it in conjunction with a forensic DNA database was through the promulgation of legislation. And it was at that point that I started the DNA project and started fighting for crime scene awareness, amongst other things, and fighting for the promulgation of this critical bill. How are we doing as far as education is concerned when it comes to crime scenes? It's a huge process. Um, I do think that from where we started to where we are now, there is certainly a lot more awareness around it. Um, the, the bill itself, funny enough, talks specifically about crime scene awareness, not only for crime scene investigators and first on crime scene police responders, but also for the public. And um, this is something that was unheard of nine years ago when my father was murdered. So it is a, it's a huge ship to move, but I do think that the awareness, even, even funny enough programs like CSI, where people understand that evidence is key and that the preservation of that evidence is key, um, I think we can all play a part in that. So I think that that is going to be exponential. The more people that hear about it, the more convictions that are secured through the use of biological evidence uh, will make people more confident in the system and, and understand the value of preserving DNA evidence. The one problem with CS CSI, which I thoroughly enjoy watching, by the way, <laughs> is that we all think that the whole thing is going to be solved in half an hour, which it isn't. Absolutely. It's a look longer. at the end. <laughs> it takes a lot longer than, what, 52 minutes or something to solve the crime. Absolutely. Now, <laughs> as far as the crime scene is concerned, that is actually, I think, at the, at the start, one of the most important things because... It's not always the police or whoever are, who are first on scene, who are first responders, effectively. Correct. And in a lot of cases now, there's, there's this sort of growth in neighborhood watches everywhere. Yes. And oftentimes, those people, just the man in the street, the guy next door who is on, out on patrol, possibly, will come across a crime scene. Yes. How do we go about imparting this information to them? What is the best way that we can start doing this? Well, that's a very good question because CPFs, Community Police Forums, as they're known, are, are part of the, the, the target group that we, we try and provide workshops to. Um, funny enough, we have this acronym that we say DNA CSI, and essentially what we're saying is don't touch, um, secure the crime scene, insist nobody interferes. So what we're trying to um, educate people around crime scene awareness is the best thing that you can do is create a physical barrier between the crime scene itself and, and any access to that particular crime scene. Um, you know, sometimes we even say if you don't have access to crime scene tape, you know, hold hands to prevent people from going in. If you have to comfort a victim, take the victim 
out of the crime scene, comfort them next door. If you think about our tiny biological evidences, think about a hair, saliva, a drop of blood, um, a chewing gum. If you walk on a crime scene, you may not even be aware that you've picked up that crime, you know, that piece of chewing gum and walked walked home with it. And essentially, that might be the only bit of evidence. So what we do is we essentially try and teach people first of all what DNA is, the value of it, in that it's a unique identifier, and that it puts that person on a crime scene forever and they have to then explain what they were doing there. And then once they understand that and the contamination issues because it's so tiny and so valuable, we then get them to understand why it's necessary to actually create these physical barriers. And that's the best that people can do. They think that by doing something that, um, you know, they're helping, but actually by not doing anything, they you probably can provide the best help to a crime even more. scene investigator, correct. Now, I think we need to just explain about DNA because it is unique to every per individual. There's not going to be more than one person unless it's one in something trillion who's going to have the same as you, but it's highly unlikely. Well, unless you're an identical twin, yes. no two people have the same DNA. And that's why, as, a for, as forensic, evident, it is, uh, forensic evidence, it is so valuable. Um, the great thing about DNA is that it's the same DNA is found in each one of your cells. So it, it's irrelevant whether you deposit um, blood or saliva or semen or a hair. If they extract DNA from that biological sample, it's going to be the same no matter what cell has been left behind. The other thing is that it's very prevalent. Um, there's something called touch DNA and they literally can, from skin cells, if you touch the surface or from sweat, they can actually extract a DNA profile. So we don't necessarily need, um, you know, fingerprints if people are wearing gloves. They actually are able to shed a lot of DNA on a crime scene. It also remains unchanged throughout your life. So in respect of cold cases, even in my father's case, for instance, if they were able to have collected DNA evidence at the time, put that onto a DNA database, the profile that is, and even 10 years later, if they had arrested somebody, taken a DNA sample and they just need a cheek swab, we call that a buckle swab, um, if that had linked that person back to the crime scene, even 10 years later, we would actually be able to put that person there and they would have to explain what they were doing there. And if you think about the prevalence of rape um, against our women and specifically our children, it really is an incredibly valuable um, form of evidence of the silent witness, so to speak, where if you think about children can't speak. Um, however, if you find semen inside the body of a child, there are no extenuating circumstances in that respect. And that's why we need to utilize this to its best advantage. How are we going to start putting DNA into this database? Where is it going to come from initially? Well, the great thing is that we have an existing forensic infrastructure. We have two DNA laboratories in the country that are already working with DNA. They're utilizing it more on a case-by-case -case basis in that, um, let's say somebody has been raped, they'll take a DNA sample um, or DNA samples from that rape survivor and they will compare it to a suspect who's been arrested and see whether that in fact um, matches. The way the DNA database works is that we'll be able to take, now it's mandatory for all arrestees, of they call them Schedule 8 offences, which is a very wide range of offences from rape, murder, right the way through to burglary. And they will enter those on the database as well as all of our convicted offenders. And they will continuously be comparing those to crime scenes. So people who are already in jail would be, the DNA samples will be taken Absolutely. at this moment Absolutely. in time once this bill goes through. Yes, they will. It's retrospective. And if people wonder why we would do that, it's because we could possibly link those perpetrators to previous crimes which they haven't yet been suspected of.
So it's a very good way of connecting um, unsolved cases um, or otherwise cold cases to to existing perpetrators. So that's why we are that's why we need the DNA database and we need the legislation. The the larger your database of DNA profiles, the greater the chance of matching it to a crime scene where you don't yet have a suspect. Because up until now there've been I mean, there was a case here in Cape Town a few months ago about uh, with a body that was found, unfortunately, of a child. And it took months to get the DNA results back to prove whether or not it was actually the missing child. Is this going to take that long that we have this database? You know, backlogs are an issue throughout the world. And it's not something that's going to be, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be solved overnight. The Forensic Science Laboratory, as I suggested, we have an existing infrastructure, which is a lot better than most countries who pass legislation. They have to start from scratch. So whilst we might not have been utilising it to its best advantage because we didn't, we don't have a large DNA database, we still have an infrastructure. Now, part of the parliamentary proceedings, um, the Portfolio Committee on Police specifically requested that the Forensic Science Laboratory prepare an implementation plan for them, showing them that with the demand and capacity that the bill is going to place on the Forensic Science Laboratory, that they will in fact cope with that demand and capacity. And they have been given funding by the government to put in what they call reference lines and crime scene lines, which are literally lanes where they're able to process up to 3,000 profiles per day. Wow, okay. So I think that initially there are going to be challenges, but we are moving in the right direction and we should embrace it in that we are progressing. And that that is something that we needed to do probably a long time ago, but I think that to close the gap is probably going to take a lot shorter now because the technology has advanced, the funding is there from the government and there's political will in terms of making this um, bill actually effective. We're better off than we were even a year ago Correct. at Absolutely. this point. Yes, so we, we should be grateful for that. How many of these laboratories are there around the country? There are two state laboratories at the moment, one in Cape Town and one in Pretoria. And currently those are the only two laboratories who are going to be able to process crime scene samples and reference samples. And when I talk about reference samples, I talk about the cheek swabs that are taken from convicted offenders and arrestees. Um, so currently they are being equipped to deal with the amount of um, you know, samples that are going to be taken to the laboratory. And obviously I suppose to keep things all you know, above board, private laboratories aren't going to be used. The, you know, there was always talk of that in the past, but um, currently it's not going to be... I think the chain of custody is an issue mm. in terms of crime scene samples and the state laboratories, as I said, they are getting the funding and are equipping themselves to actually cope with that. Who knows in time? I mean, throughout the world, there are lots of private laboratories assisting state laboratories with the backlog and assisting them with processing reference samples. But that's not the case in South Africa at the moment. But this bill is going to be reviewed every five years. And perhaps as the technology improves and, you know, as the capacity perhaps gets I don't know if it increases, maybe these things will be relooked at. But right now, it's not. It's just the state laboratories that will process the DNA. You must be very proud that this has come to this point relatively quickly, if you think about it. Well, no, it's not relatively no, quickly. The, for, you know, we always think things take <laughs> 10 or 20 years. Well, it's taken nine years of well, fighting and five okay. years through Parliament. I think that there are a lot of people that have been involved who've made this happen. And um, it, it, it definitely hasn't been a one-man show, that's for sure. The DNA project is... is you know, co comprises of a lot of incredible people who have driven this process. Um, when this bill finally did go through Parliament, there were incredible people within Parliament um, who drove this and understood the importance of this bill. Um, sadly, 
I think it has taken too long because I think lives have been lost as mm. a result of it. I think that if the, if the DNA database had been um, able to grow at a much earlier stage and um, increased in size, we would have been able to link far more serial offenders. And obviously when you link offenders to their crimes at a much earlier stage of their criminal career, you take them out of the system and prevent them from doing it again. And we all know that we probably have one of the highest reoffending rates in the world. And sadly, there's no accountability and there's no effective mechanism to identify these serial offenders. And I do think this is a way to do that. Um, and the sooner the better to try and, as I say, take these people out of the system and, and stop them from repeating their violent and, and horrendous acts. You're tuned to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Karen Key and this is The Law Report. My guest tonight is Vanessa Lynch, Executive Director and Founder of the DNA Project. If you have any questions or comments, you can call us on 0892 10 2010. 0892 Well, we're joined on the line now by Karen Howell. Karen, good evening. Good evening, Karen. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed for agreeing to join us on the show tonight. And you're going to be sharing your story with us. Yes, I am. So t tell us a little bit about what happened to you. Okay. Uh, my story um, started two years ago in September, where I was walking to go and fetch my daughter from school, and um, a black man walked past me and threw me to the ground and had a 30-centimeter knife at my throat and saying he would kill me if I didn't give me my cell phone, which, of course, I duly did. But um, three days later, and I can mention his name now because he has been convicted, Philip Bassi was in my home with Kululani Sabande, and they broke into my home, and they dragged me around for about an hour and a half, ransacked my house, tied me up, and then took turns in raping me. So um, in my situation, in terms of what's happening with the DNA, which I must say I'm very excited with what Vanessa is doing, um, because on the one hand, with Philip Mabasu, we did have DNA evidence, but we did not have for um, uh, Sabande Kudilani. And so my, my case was very interesting in terms of, of what's, uh, how it turned out, because basically a single state witness doesn't generally get a conviction. Um, there's too much mistaken identity, etc. But in terms of my case, because of my, my evidence was so um, incredibly accurate in terms of identification and, and all the evidence that I did give in my statements, eventually, unfortunately not through the help of the police, I have to say, unfortunately, I had a horrendous experience there. But um, it, it's through my actions and what I had taken in, I did get a conviction with the second one based on, a, on just being a witness. But the DNA with Philip Basu was what actually said that my process of what I had done and my statements given uh, were not incorrect, could not be incorrect. Vanessa, this is, uh, unfortunately, the, the, how she got to the point, Karen, how you got to the end of that was not a good experience from the very beginning. Obviously, the rape and then the treatment by the police and all of that, but at least you got the conviction at the end if there was something from the DNA. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I got a 40-year and 59-year sentence for, for Mabasu, which was which were fantastic. But if I had not have had that DNA, which unfortunately the investigating officer at the time, which I had kicked off my case, um, because what we call the chain of evidence, if you don't have that correctly done, as Vanessa I know will vouch with me, unfortunately the DNA is almost um, is useless. If that's, that's why the education process mm. and the, the educating process that Vanessa's implementing with us is so crucial, because if that is not done correctly, then that DNA is worthless. 
So that kind of evidence doesn't have the full roundabout and there's a broken link almost. Um, then it's kind of sorry for you, they can throw your case out of court. But yes, I think it almost happened to me. Yeah, I think it also starts with people like yourself, Karen, who are brave enough after you've been raped to go for the, the to have the rape test done and the, and the rape kit taken and all of that. Because a lot of people, all they want to do is just get into the shower. They don't oh. want to do that. And that, I think, Vanessa, is, where, is the starting yes. point. Yes, it is. And um, hi, Karen. Um, hi, <laughs> I, I must say, I've, 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 I have spoken to you before, but I, I never said at that point that I think you're incredibly brave to share your story. And, and I think through through you doing that, um, you provide the probably the most critical form of education because in your bravery, you actually show people that you can take these people off the streets. And, and unfortunately, you have been a victim um, and, 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 and so violently so too. But it just demonstrates that by connecting these people and being able to secure a conviction, you take them out of the system and prevent them from doing it again. And um, as you say, that the first 48 hours after being raped, where there is so much DNA and biological evidence to be found on a rape survivor, are critical. And um, although the process, and, and, and I'm not a rape survivor, so I've just heard from so many people who have, have endured it, is absolutely traumatic. Um, hopefully, through this, you know, through this process, we will be able to secure convictions through the use of DNA in in um, in cases. And also, in in Karen's case, with the the problems with the police and possibly almost losing the evidence. I mean, that hopefully will be part of the education process when this bill comes out. Absolutely. You know, that applies to all types of evidence. Mm. The chain of custody applies to all evidence. Um, And, you know, one has to understand that DNA is only one form of evidence. And exactly as Karen said in the case of um, the the other rapist, it was through her testimony that he was convicted. So you can't rely solely on DNA evidence, although it is one of the most reliable forms of evidence because it is scientific and it is objective. Uh, You still have to have good police work and you still have to have a criminal justice system that supports you. But um, certainly if you can pull those all together through an education, you know, through an educational process, as well as the public understanding the value and importance of it, will certainly go a lot more towards securing convictions. Karen, I'm really grateful to you for, for coming on the show this evening and for sharing your story. And hopefully it's had an impact on people who possibly have been too afraid to speak out. I think that's the other part is we need to unfortunately speak up. And um, that's what you said here, that you're hoping to inspire others to speak up and to stop rape. And what you've done tonight, I think, has gone a long way towards helping others. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Karen and Vanessa. You're doing an amazing job, and I'm very proud of you. Keep Thank it up, you. girl. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Karen. Good night to you. Thanks. Good night. Good night. We've got some other callers on the on the line. Oh, they're not quite set up yet. But this is the, what what Karen was talking about is exactly the point. It's I think it starts unfortunately with the victim. Yes. Because that's where it starts. Yes. And as Vanessa said, uh, as Karen said, it's not just the the DNA with her. It was the evidence as well. Correct. So it's all of that. Yes. That unfortunately the victim has to take a lot of responsibility for. They do, and um, and I think that even if you um, provide support to a victim, um, you know, often people who are traumatized they don't they can't think they mm. don't know what to do, and that's why don't don't have this thought in your mind. It'll never happen to me. It it might not happen to you, but you might be the friend of a victim, um, you know, to whom it's happened, and therefore we all need to be educated to understand the importance of it. Um, a lot of our awareness campaigns are around this specific is- issue. I mean, one of them is quite a controversial advert, and it shows a woman. Um, you can see she's in a hospital with her head hanging down, and there's a 
a big sort of uh, um, words across it saying she asked for it. And underneath it, it says she asked for DNA evidence to be collected. And even though it's, it's, it, it plays on that, um, you know, that mm. the, the words of she asked for it, um, it just is, is trying to draw people's attention to the fact of how critical it is to be able to um, obtain DNA evidence within, a, within 48 hours minimum, um, you know, to, to get biological evidence. And, and you can apply the same thing to any crime scene where there's been a, a violent attack or even a hijacking, you know, touch DNA if somebody's touched the, the steering wheel or the handle of a car. Leave the car alone, lock it, move away from it, don't let anybody touch it. All of these things contribute towards It's it. the crime scene, as you mentioned, it's right at the beginning. Exactly. You know, move away. Move away. Join hands if you have to, to form a circle around the thing Correct. until the police get there, but don't touch anything. And don't be afraid to speak up. If you think that somebody is walking in there and not say, get out. Wait for the crime scene investigator to arrive. Um, and even if the crime scene investigator is not wearing full, you know, personal protection equipment and, and shoe covers, Tell him to do so. Tell him that you'll you'll wait there. You'll stand vigil on that crime scene until such time as he comes back and he wears the curricula. We, we need to speak out about these things. It's important. Absolutely. Uh, Paki in Cape Town, good evening. Good evening. Thank you very much for taking my call. Guys, um, uh, this is terrific. Um, I love tonight's um, uh, topic. It's something that South Africa has actually been waiting for for a very long time to ensure that there's at the end of the day successful conviction of people who are believed and who've been proven beyond reasonable doubt. And I guess in this case, there shouldn't be any beyond reasonable doubt, but it is time that um, our investigators, our courts really um, have got uh, 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 an opportunity or gives science opportunity to prove or to assist improving cases so that to ensure um, um, successful convictions. However, um, you know, we really do not have to wait for the bill to be passed. Uh, obviously, you know, um, he has actually proven how long, you know, um, bills take before they actually get enacted. Um, my question really to your guest tonight is um, has there been any um, public awareness insofar as um, preservation of the crime scene is concerned and also um, don't you think that we also should be um, incorporating such awareness programs as early as um, primary schools so that our young kids grow up knowing um, and, 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 and understanding the importance of not fiddling with crime scenes um, 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 or places or areas where crimes have actually been, 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 been committed. I mean, you guys, you and I, I mean, South Africans will actually um, agree with us that often when crimes um, of any nature have been committed, many people who always like flock into the crime scene and at the end of the day, you know, like um, the, 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 the small little evidence, you know, the DNA that tonight we are talking about on SAFM gets, you know, um, disturbed. And it's so much like it actually like ends up being difficult for investigators or the crime scene, crime investigators to collect as bits and pieces of the, um, of possible um, evidence that they would actually it will actually help them. To, 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 to create cases against, you know, um, 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 the perceived to have been um, a crime, uh, 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 um, you know, uh, those who have actually crime committers, so to say. So basically, um, without really taking too much of a time, my um, contribution is really is to 
please make sure that um, this crime um, scene awareness is also incorporated into, um, you know, primary school so that our kids grow up knowing exactly. Because our, us old ones, you know, we know already, but it's just a matter of understanding the importance of DNA as um, an integral part of um, a forensic um, investigation where we're allowing science to assist us to convicting those who are liable. Thank you very much for taking my call. Thank you you so much for getting through, and I think he's got a very good point. Well, funny enough, thanks, Paki. Um, one of the uh, one of the workshops that we do is through schools. We actually, as a DNA project, one of our objectives is, is crime scene awareness, and we provide free workshops to various levels of the community, whether it be paramedics or the police or community police forums. And schools are actually one of our target audiences. We don't necessarily go into primary schools because some of the topics are, um, you know, when you're dealing with crime, one has to be a little bit more sensitive. But we do deal with the, probably from grade. 10 onwards, and um, we teach them a little bit of the science behind DNA, etc. But um, I do agree with what Paki's saying, and that children have a lot to say, and they tell their parents, and they're a wonderful form of communication and awareness. And some of our programs are designed to be a little bit more fun. We go to the science centers and some of the science fairs, and we have workshops with a number of children. So that is definitely on our agenda, and we never say no to anybody who asks for a workshop. So... You know, it's it's even though it's critical to ensure that first on crime scene responders are made aware of of the potential of the evidence. Um, there's no harm in the entire community being aware of it too. And the more people, the better, basically. Absolutely. Now you're based here in Cape Town. What if Correct. somebody around the country, somewhere else, would like one of these workshops? What we about have the that? most amazing trainers throughout the country, and um, we're very blessed to have a family of we call it the DNA Project family of doctors and professors and scientists who are all passionate about DNA and about the work of the. DNA. DNA project and they actually host these um, these DNA workshops they're about one and a half to two hours each they talk about DNA they show a short DVD they play interactive games they provide free um, DNA awareness material to the audience um, we even give away free crime scene tape to paramedics and um, CPFs and um, you know security guards so that they can literally create it just says keep out crime scene a physical barrier um, between as I say the crime scene and the public so that by the time the crime scene investigator arrives there actually is is that barrier um, and we've got lots of posters to give up you know to, to put up in police stations or at schools so if you go on our website there's a web there's an email address there dnaproject.co.za that's the website. Contact us, you know, at infodnaproject.ca.za and um, we can set up a workshop and provide you with material and spread the word, absolutely. We all need to do this. So if you're looking for a, a workshop anywhere around the country, well, most places I would imagine around yes. the country, contact the DNA Project, email them at info at dnaproject.co.za and tell them where you are and tell them what you need and I'm sure they'll be able to help you or find somebody who could. Right, Paul in Johannesburg, good evening. Good evening, how are you? Hi, very well, thanks, how are you? Okay, very well, good show, ma'am. Thank you. Um, I just need to make a, I just need to ask a question. Uh, firstly, I'm an identical twin, and what concerns me and uh, what is that the DNA that my brother and I have is exactly the same? Yes. Because I heard the lady make a comment yes. earlier that... Uh, 
twins have identical twins have the same DNA. Correct. You you would have the same DNA, but your fingerprints would be different. And again, we have to illustrate that DNA is not the only form of evidence. But um, obviously, if you ha are an identical twin, your DNA evidence will your DNA will be identical. So in that case, um, it would be difficult to prove whether it was you or your brother who was on the crime scene. Unless he fact, left his fingerprints behind. It, exactly. Um, or there was eyewitness testimony, or your alibi didn't um, you know correspond to to oh. to where you were. So uh, you know there, there, there are various ways and means to um, convict somebody based on on evidence, uh, you know, not only DNA. But there have oh, been cases okay. where they've only had DNA evidence and it's been an identical twin, and they haven't been able to prove which one it was. So yeah, yeah that yeah, doesn't happen okay. particularly often. Oh dear, Paul. But hopefully we're not oh. giving you any ideas. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Uh, fortunately, we both uh, fairly well-behaved guys, and we grew up in very good homes. So. Good. Just the other comment I want to make, man. I think particularly the SAPS, uh, all branches of the SAPS, be it the detectives, I think the, at the police colleges, they need to focus on proper DNA training, you know, and a, a particular case in point is the Oscar Pretorius case, the O.J. Simpson case, you know, where DNA evidence has been tampered with, you know, or the crime scene has been tampered with, which has serious ramifications for the outcome of the case, you know, and I think it's imperative that the police in particular get properly trained, adequately trained, especially at the colleges, you know, because I've seen in many instances where crimes have been committed where, you know, there's total disregard for the crime scene, and I think that they need to just highlight that, that they train in colleges. Um, I think it's important. Yes, yeah, I that's think this all is I have to say, but I think it's an important point. Thanks, Paul. I think this is what Vanessa's main aim here or the main aim of the of the DNA project is this maintaining or preserving the crime scene Correct. and the more people okay. that wander into it the, you know it's going to be an issue so I think this is where a lot of your education side is going yes and you yeah, know what, yes. one of one of the things that um, is going to to um, come through with with the effective implementation of this DNA bill is that mm. when when you when you think about how a database works when you are collecting DNA evidence from crime scenes, even though, even though they are unknown um, profiles in that you don't know who's deposited them, yeah. so you're trying to solve a crime. If you are collecting DNA from lots of different crime scenes and w entering them on a database, what you'll be able to see is when you've got a serial offender committing the same crimes. And through that, you can derive criminal intelligence. So you can say, right, this is a guy who's actually raping. He's a serial rapist. This is the location that he seems to be working in. This is his modus operandi, because you're linking those cases through the DNA, and those match reports are being sent to the investigator. Yeah. So um, that's why it's also important. It's that it's not only just being able to link that case to the particular suspect, but when you don't yeah. have a suspect, it's being able to link cases together, mm. where otherwise you've got no other methodology to link a seemingly yeah. unrelated case. And this is where DNA databases have proven to be so effective throughout the world, is that they've been able to derive criminal intelligence through the linking of cases when they don't even have mm. a suspect and then they arrest somebody on an unrelated offense yeah, it could sure. be um, you know something less minor than a murder for instance and they actually link that person to mm. more serious cases um, yeah. and, and that's why this bill is so important to be able to not only make it compulsory for all arrestees to have their DNA taken but also to ensure that crime scene samples are in fact processed for DNA at the same okay. time well, Paul, Just one last question. Sorry, man. This again? DNA. What is? I know it's abbreviated. What does it actually imply? What does it mean? DNA. What does it stand for? Deoxyribonucleic acid. 
Oh my God. <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's only the non-coded region of your DNA. They only look at 10 regions in your DNA. And there are millions and millions of locations that they can look at. But actually, 95% of your DNA doesn't code for anything. We don't know what it means. As scientists don't know what it means. So they're literally looking at the non-coded regions of your DNA. There are 10 locations that they look at. And that's enough. Those 10 locations um, are enough to actually um, generate a unique DNA profile that can identify that person, um, you know, as, as being the depositor of that evidence. So... But that doesn't give away any personal information other than the sex of the person. There's no personal information that can be derived from it. And that's why it's not an invasion of privacy and it's not unconstitutional and um, it's accepted throughout the world as just a means, like a fingerprint, of uniquely identifying a person. Okay. Sorry, just one last question. Tell me, uh, the, 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 in comparison to the U.S. and uh, you know other countries, uh, uh, our standards in terms of DNA testing up to scratch? I mean, you yes, know. Um, absolutely. You know. Absolutely. I was very fortunate to have been um, sponsored to go to the International DNA Users Conference at Interpol in Lyon two weeks ago in okay. France. And the technology that they're used, utilizing in South Africa is on a par with the rest of the world, no question about it. The difference is the size of our database, and that's because of legislation. So in the uh, U.S., they have okay. approximately 12 million profiles on their database. Jeez. In okay. the U.K., approximately 5 million in China, 23 million profiles. And in South Africa, currently, we have about 180,000 profiles. Now, relative Jeez. to the crime, you can understand yeah. where we still need to get to. Yeah, sure. Okay, thank you so thank much. You. Uh, Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Just very informative. keep behaving yourself, Paul. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> we know where to find you. And tell your brother to keep behaving himself, otherwise you could get into trouble. So. Yes, I know that. Yeah, I keep a watch on that. <laughs> Thanks for getting right. through. Good night to you. Bye-bye. You tune to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Karen Key, and this is The Law Report. My guest tonight is Vanessa Lynch, executive director and founder of The DNA Project. If you have any questions or comments, you can call us on 0892 10 2010. We're joined on the line now by Corey Spengler. Corey, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to join us on the show and for telling us your story this evening. Do you want to just tell us your journey? My journey, my rape happened when I was 21 years old. I'm now 29. I took a lift from a friend of mine on the, home from, on the way home from Varsity, and I never ended up getting home that night. I ended up in a hotel room with him and his work colleague where I was anally raped. I, that night changed my life in so many different ways, and the next morning when I eventually got left at Park Station, I went straight to the, to the hospital where a friend of mine took me there and I had all the samples and everything taken and I did open a case. But you also, we spoke to, to another rep survivor earlier yeah. and she, I think like her, you also had rather a, you became almost a victim for the second time when it came to dealing with the police. It did, because when I remember sitting, going to the hospital and being on, on the table and the guy was explaining to the nurse why it was anal rape and not normal rape. And he was like explaining to the nurses while I was on the table. So it was, it was not a good experience. And then afterwards, the inspecting officer never did any investigations because he never, the hotel name I had was wrong and they never went to go and check. And when we found out the hotel name, obviously there was no evidence left. So nobody had been to check the room to look for evidence of any sort in the actual room itself. 
How long did all of this take to get to court, Corey? It took a year to get to court. By the time it got to court, it was then postponed about two or three times because the DNA was not yet ready, so it was postponed. Then it came back positive for the one suspect, where they both denied the ch- charges. When it came back positive, then he obviously had to admit that he was there. And he actually gave up on his friend. So he implicated his friend in the case, and it got postponed for almost a year because he battled with his lawyers and didn't want this lawyer or that lawyer. And eventually it went to court. Unfortunately, they, they were both found guilty, but unfortunately they only got three years house arrest because it was indecent assault, not rape. The legislation hadn't changed in 2005. It's different now, though. It's different now, yeah. So they got um, so they got three years house arrest, but they both lost their jobs and they got a criminal record. So that was at least good, because if the DNA hadn't come back positive, I don't think they would have been found guilty at all. There was another, uh, somewhat, in my view, horrific incident in your case was the fact that the reason why they weren't given harsher sentences was because they'd been drinking, of all things. Yes, I remember the magistrate. I sat in the courtroom, and after like three or four years of fighting this, you're in the courtroom on the day of sentencing, all on your own, and the magistrate says, well, if it wasn't for the alcohol, it wouldn't have happened. And I think that was the harshest part of the whole journey, was hearing the magistrate say that. Vanessa, you, you, you're fighting a battle with the DNA. We're getting to, uh, hopefully, to a good conclusion there, but mm. you have to still fight this. Mm. There's, there's other battles that women yes. need to fight. It's the not just of the, the DNA. Of the hospitals, and, and the government hospitals are not all that friendly to the victims and not all that supportive. And also then you get the HIV drugs you're supposed to go for, and you have to come back every week to get the drugs. You can't get one a full month's dose in one, at one time. So a lot of women don't have money to keep going back to hospital to get medication and everything that they do need. Corey, hi. It's, it's Vanessa, hi. and, I'm, and I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about your story. It's, it's, it really is, um, as I said to, to Karen, incredibly brave of you to, to, to speak out like you do. And, um, and I hope you realize that by doing so, you, you really are assisting in, in so many ways because by speaking out um, about the things that are wrong with the system. It's the only way that we're going to be able to redress them. Yeah. And, um, you know, un- unfortunately, <laughs> your experience was, was such a bad experience, and it's through that that, you, you know, that you're able to identify where things can be improved. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's a, that's a very important platform that you have, and, and I really encourage you to continue with that because I was talking to Karen earlier, and, you know, Everybody has to fight the system to some extent in, in mm. different ways, but it has to be a constructive approach. It's, mm. it's pointless throwing up our arms and saying, well, this is terrible and, you know, we're all just going to curl up and, and, and feel sorry for ourselves. Yeah. We, we need to be strong and say, you know what, there's a problem here. What are we going to do about it? And there uh, needs to also be a speeding up of cases through the system. I mean, my case went to court, got postponed for three months, went to court again, got postponed for three months, and it did that for, for more than two years before yes. I eventually actually got to the end of my court case. So besides taking a year to get to court, I then took like two, more than two years through the court system because they postponed it every three months. Yes. No, the criminal justice system d- does take its time, and unfortunately it's there for a reason and mm. um, it doesn't always work in your favor and it, it often protects you know th- those who are being prosecuted but unfortunately that, that that system has to be you know it has to be followed otherwise you, you know mm. we, we can end up with with innocent people being convicted which, which mm. is equally bad um, but there there needs to be as you say
say we need to identify the areas which, which are really lacking and which yeah. do require further support from the community. And I often say that, you know, South Africans are actually a really strong group of people. And it's not that we are accepting of crime because we're not. I think that people don't often know what to do. So yeah. you give people a job and say, you know what, this is where you can assist. We need, whether it be, um, you know, more rape crisis centers in your particular area that yeah. ensure that the rape survivors are given better counseling, that they are getting better access to drugs, that they are, yeah. um, you know, um, given an environment where they collect samples that doesn't traumatize them even more than they've already been traumatized. These are things that people can in fact do mm. and if we all play our part or, or get the community involved in some small yeah. part, collectively we really can make a huge difference mm. and that, that's why I say I, I encourage you to continue to speak out and identify those areas where maybe you can put that energy back into something that, even if it's a small thing, you know, starting something small, um, getting support and garnering it. If we all yeah. do our little bit in, in some areas, I do think that we are eventually going to get to where we want to get to because there are enough people that are standing up against yeah. violence against women and children now that we, we, we need to stick together and, and really get this ball rolling. And, and it's slowly becoming a subject which can be spoken about when exactly. before it was something you couldn't really speak about. Correct, correct. And doing what you're doing, Corey, you are putting the word out there and, and as, as Vanessa says, extremely brave to come out and talk about what happened to you. But, um, you know, you give other women hope. I think there are other women, lots of women I know probably out there mm. in similar situations to you who probably haven't had the courage to speak out and possibly hearing your story would give them the courage to maybe mm. even just tell somebody. You know, just speak about it. And I think in speaking about it is important because that's how I got my, most of my healing was being able to actually tell people what happened to me and not to let it bottle up inside and kill me from the inside. Yeah, because I think, as you said, you got your life back at the end of the, you weren't going to let them take your life at the end. I wasn't going to. I knew, I knew that they had taken something from me, but they weren't going to take more than that. And that, that gave me the will to fight back. Well, Corey, very proud of you, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us this evening. Very grateful for you for your time on the show. It's a pleasure, and thank, thank you, you for Corey. the good work that's being done. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. Good yeah. night to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Gosh, incredibly brave women on the Amazing. show tonight. Amazing. Incredible. Harry in Port Elizabeth, let's talk to you. Good night. Good yes, evening. Hi there. Good evening. Now, my question, I hope it hasn't been covered yet, um, is I'm just curious about the ethnic origin. Does the... Um, DNA testing determine the ethnic origin. In other words, let's say the police had a database. Would they be able to say that the man came from Nigeria or no. he came from Asia or he was no. a Caucasian? Because, you know, we're so understandably sensitive about racial reporting of stuff, but often it's important because, I mean, if you say, for example, you know, um, and, um, an African lady was seen running from Barragana or a white lady was seen or Indian lady... It's important in determining, because, you know, often in America where they report, they say, you know, an African-American was seen running. I mean, it's not a slur, really. It's just a fact. So what my question is, on the, on the DNA database, do they, can they determine the ethnicity? Because it might be important in, you know, being, putting a, a lookout for the person. I mean, is it relevant, would you say? No, it's, in South Africa, the forensic DNA profile is very specific in that there are no behavioral or, um, uh, uh, what is the word? Um, uh, racial, ethnic. Racial, ethnic, um, okay. any appearance, um, none of that can be read from the DNA profile. Okay. Literally only the sex, whether the person is male 
or female. The rest of the information is literally, it's a unique identifier. Uh, Is that that person's DNA or is it not that person's DNA? The same as a fingerprint. uh, If you think about a fingerprint, uh, you cannot read any information um, about uh, the person other than whether it is or isn't that person's fingerprint. But you said gender, you said. eh? No, gender's different. uh, And that's actually quite interesting because that came up for discussion quite a bit in the portfolio uh, committee hearings. Gender is how the person identifies themselves. So they could be born um, with a sex as a male or female. That's the XX, which is a female or XY chromosome. But they may identify themselves as a woman. And that would be their gender. Their gender would be female, but their sex could be male. And the reason that it's that it's differentiated in the bill is that when you are looking at a DNA profile, the forensic DNA profile, you will look at the sex of that profile, whether that person is a male or female. When you're taking a DNA sample from a person, the person taking the sample has to be the same gender as the person from whom the sample is being taken. So if, for instance, a person is arrested and they may be born a female, but they identify themselves as a male, then a person of the same gender, i.e. a male, must take that DNA sample. So there was a recognition um, in terms of gender and gender identification in South Africa in terms of this bill, which which also shows the progression. Very progressive. Uh, very progressive. And that was the um, Annelies van Vaak, the, the chairperson of the Portfolio Committee, who was very specific in yeah. ensuring that that, that was in yeah, fact taken into account. Yeah, but going back to it, that's the only information that, that, you. that, that you'll get. <laughs> Thanks, bye. Well, thanks, Harry. I've also learned something now. Thanks for getting through. Yeah. Right. Gosh, that, that's quite interesting. Very progressive. Very progressive. Well, gosh, yes. Are we the only country that does that, do you know? Um, I must say, I've, I haven't heard of any other countries DNA bills um, addressing that particular issue. So um, it's an interesting question. I should I should have asked. I, I, I didn't ask, but that did specifically gosh, come I wouldn't up. even have I entered my mind to ask that. So yes. thank you, Harry, for yes, that. thank you. Right. Tabisa in Bloemfontein, good evening. Uh, good evening to you. Hello. Hi. How can yeah. we help? Yes, uh, I'd like to ask, actually, is it possible that actually everybody, like, who is living in South Africa, probably who is born and, like, who has an ID in South Africa, couldn't they just actually, like, the forensic departments, uh, like, have all the data, like, of all the people that, actually, even though you are not recorded as a criminal in South Africa, where they could have, like, be likely to, if somebody commits a crime and it's, like, the first time he commits that crime, could actually be searched and like uh, the, his IDs and his prints could be like actually linked with uh, uh, those crimes yes. or something like that. It's something I've actually wondered about to be yes. so myself, Vanessa. That's a very good question, and it's a question that very many people ask. Um, it's not necessary, first of all, to have the entire population on your database. We're just looking to put the criminal population on the DNA database because we want to identify who's committing the crimes. Secondly, from a capacity perspective, um, we don't want to burden our forensic laboratories who are already going to be heavily burdened with this bill in terms of throughput um, with putting unnecessary profiles on the database. Thirdly, and probably the most important aspect, is that we, from a constitutional perspective, we do not want to put innocent people's profile on the DNA database. And this was something that was discussed um, quite extensively with the Portfolio Committee when addressing the bill. A convicted offender um, will have their profile remaining indefinitely on the database, and an arrestee will actually have that profile removed from the database within three years if it does not result in a conviction. Oh, okay, that's okay. So it's not there permanently. No, it's not there permanently. And this is in line with with the rest 
of the world. And in fact, there was a very significant case called um, the MARPA case in the UK, which went all the way to the European Courts of Human Rights. And in that case, um, it was specifically a person who had been arrested um, and not convicted and their profile had remained on the database as was allowed in the UK and they had applied um, to have it removed and the European Courts of Human Rights said that there was no reason to retain an innocent person's profile on the database that they did have a right to have but it removed. To be so's point is well what if somebody goes out and does something for the first time would it not be a plan to have everybody on there so that when someone does do something for the first time you know who it is? Well it'll never happen in South Africa. <laughs> Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I, I think that unfortunately, yes, the, the, the catch there is that obviously somebody has to first commit the crime. Mm. But um, hopefully in the future, we won't have a limited schedule of offences in terms of who we put on the database. They've done that from a capacity perspective initially, but um, hopefully in the future, all crimes and all arrestees will have to So are we only doing how serious do you have to be to actually um, get on well the database? Well, as I said, it's Schedule 8 offences are, I mean, obviously all your serious crimes, your, your violent crimes, um, right the way down to burglary. But uh, drunk and driving, for instance, um, it's not mandatory. They still have the discretion to take a DNA profile from anybody who they believe, um, you know, has committed a crime for which they that they believe that DNA would be would be useful. But um, compulsory is, is Schedule 8 offences. But in the future, they will probably take that um, a lot further in terms of all crimes um, for which people have been arrested. So it will get bigger and bigger as I time think goes by. No DNA database has ever reduced the scope um, in terms of legislation. So legislation only broadens the scope of the database. Yeah, but I have to like be negative about it because really, uh, like I have been like uh, faced with a number of stories whereby like my house was being like battled like every after every like three months. So the police would just come and like take fingerprints, but those fingerprints never lead anybody to the house breakings and all that is even still right now. Like it's even like right now it's like it's almost like a, a year past without like having those people. Like I never heard that they were convicted or something like the investigator never phoned me back and told me about what happened. And all that. Unfortunately, to be so, your story is one of many. But then, then I remind you of what I call the starfish story. And, um, you know, it, 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 it might just happen in one case where they do come around and they do take DNA and they do enter it on the database and it does connect it to a, a person um, who may have committed serious offences. And maybe in a year's time that might increase to two and maybe it will increase to five and, and so on and so forth. Um, and eventually, if we continue with it and we continue to be positive and understand that this is exp exponentially going to grow in its, um, you know, in its effectiveness, I do think that it's, it's going to be a tangible, um, one of the most tangible solutions to crime resolution in this country. So I'd like to encourage you to remain positive and to keep trying, and you never know, there, there could be a case where, in fact, you identify a biological evidence um, in a burglary and you insist that the investigating officer collect it and they enter it on a database, and who knows, it could actually connect to a person who's had their DNA profile arrested for an unrelated offence and they could connect them to the crime of burglary to your house. So I would say that continue to be positive. It may still happen. And I'm sure to be so once this bill has been enacted into, and, and passed into law, um, can you insist that they take DNA evidence at a crime scene? I think we can. Um, I think we can insist on anything we want. And um, I, I often 
say to myself that if I'd known then what I know now at my father's crime scene, I would have stood vigil at that crime scene for weeks, if months, if I had to, uh, protecting it, ensuring that somebody came and collected DNA evidence, because I do believe that had they done so, we would have been able to connect those perpetrators. We knew there was a gang working in that area uh, to my father's crime. So, yes, speak out. There's absolutely no reason why you can't insist on, on the rights, on, on your rights, and insist that people come and collect DNA evidence correctly and properly. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, my thank uh, to be so. I have to say thank you very much. But we've come to the end of the show. But thank you very much for your points. Okay, thank you. Thanks to be so. Good night to you. Bye-bye. Well, my thanks once again this evening to Vanessa Lynch, Executive Director and Founder of the DNA Project. Vanessa, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. And for, so I think it's been a very worthwhile and valuable program, so thank you so much. If you'd like to find out more, you can take a look at the website. It's www.dnaproject.co.za. And don't forget to email them info at dnaproject.co.za if you would like to organize for them to come around and do at one of their training sessions on how to preserve crime scenes and all about DNA. The Law Report is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10. And in next week's law program, we'll be talking about rental property law again with attorney Marlon Chevalu. That's the Law Report next week, Monday, the 25th of November. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after 9 with Health Matters. So join me then. And before we go, a reminder that there's a list of available documents on the Facebook page, Law on SAFM. And if you'd like any of them, post a message on Facebook. But please remember to include your email address or if you don't have access to Facebook, you can email me on law at safm.co.za and I can send you a copy of the list so you can choose what you want. And I have included on the, the list on Facebook now the DNA bill if you'd like to have a look through it yourself. So if you want a copy of that, just let me know. 